This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. We begin our short series on the stories of Edna O'Brien with the story, The Doll. The protagonist in Edna O'Brien's The Doll has a favorite doll, one that she must somehow surrender to her teacher for a small role in a Christmas play. The mystery surrounding why the teacher kept the doll after the fiasco of that school play or why the teacher never seemed to like her haunts her even after she's left home and made her life elsewhere as an adult. In the essay, My Father's Gloves, Peter Orner describes the soul-defining episode of having stealthily taken a pair of expensive lambskin leather gloves his father loved. Orner takes the gloves with him to the new house where he lives with his mother and brother after his parents' divorce. He takes them to college. He takes them to Namibia where the desert nights are very cold. But Orner never actually wears the gloves. Not once. He imagines many scenarios, all the opportunities he could have seized to return the gloves. When he comes to the part in the imagined story where he has to explain his motivation for taking them in the first place, the story kept collapsing. Well-made things eventually deteriorate, writes Peter Orner, and shares that the gloves are no longer baby soft. All the handless years have dried them up. He admits at last that he never wanted the gloves. Not the gloves. It was never about the gloves. In O'Brien's The Doll, when the protagonist must return home to see to a relative's funeral, she has occasion to visit the teacher's home. The teacher is dead, but the confiscated doll remains in her china cabinet. Writes O'Brien, if dolls can age, it certainly had. Gray and moldy, the dress and cloak are as a shroud, and I thought if I were to pick her up, she would disintegrate. The teacher had treasured it so much the doll sat in the same spot for decades. Or, maybe, she didn't really care about the doll itself and that's why it sat frozen in the same space for all that time, untouched and unappreciated. Peter Orner writes that our imaginations sometimes fail us for a reason, not because it is cathartic to tell the truth, but because coming clean may be a better, if smaller, story. A scared and angry and bewildered kid takes his father's gloves and ends up carrying them around with him from place to place, rented apartment to rented apartment. Sometimes he takes them out and feels them, but never puts them on. For the protagonist lamenting the loss of the doll in O'Brien's story, the reason for her feeling bereft becomes the mystery of the story. What else was lost back there, in the hometown of childhood, that place of the stresses and slights of a front hall of a family home in Chicago, or a small schoolroom in Ireland, those spaces where raised hands signal that we want to be seen, accepted, or loved in some way? This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner. We discuss The Doll by Edna O'Brien. Every Christmas there came a present of a doll from a lady I scarcely knew. She was a friend of my mother's, and though they only met rarely or accidentally at a funeral, 
she kept up the miraculous habit of sending to me a doll. It would come on the evening bus shortly before Christmas, and it added to the hectic glow of those days when everything was charged with bustle and excitement. We made potato stuffing, we made mince pies, we made bowls of trifle, we decorated the windowsills with holly and with tinsel, and it was as if untoward happiness was about to befall us. So the thing about Edna O'Brien that everybody talks about is that she writes a lot about obsessive love. Do you think that's true about this story? Yeah, I mean, I think this story is such a um, moving target. But yeah, absolutely, at its core is the love for the doll, right? I mean, wouldn't you say? Yes and no. It's obviously something that she's using to represent that past. And maybe something about her own past that's really removed from her true identity. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, like, the story is about love for oneself, in a way. Like, you know, this is about, a, it's, it's a very, I mean, I say this about every story that we do, <laughs> but that's because we always choose strange stories, and this is not as uh, transparently strange as some of the other ones, maybe. But it's on the undercurrent, the distance that this character, that this speaker has from us is pretty far, you know. And, and I feel like the story is as much about, like, her trying to, you know, to, to love who she was and who she is without telling us really a ton about either, in a way. Mm -hmm. But certainly we don't know who she is now. She hides behind this sort of, you know, kind of pretty remarkably vague language that I think is a stunning example how vague language can actually work sometimes. As a, can I make an aside? Yes. Um, there's that great posthumous book of Calvino's where he talks about the virtues, certain virtues. Uh, it's called Six Notes to the Next Millennium, and he died after only having written five of them <laughs> and he mm. so the book is called six notes but there's only five in it five in it and one of the things that he praises is is vagueness as a virtue which you know is sort of totally counterintuitive you know mm -hmm. um but i think that this is a good example of uh, a story that is kind of hard to pin down especially at a certain part when when the shift happens um, but I made it all convoluted because you asked about its relationship to love. And, you know, I think it has to do with the, her love for the doll of her childhood and how intensely she felt for that particular doll. The doll is then taken away from her. And then she grows up and doesn't give a shit about the doll anymore. And so you're wondering like, okay, well, what's the story about then? Well, the story is about leaving a place. Now, I like what you said about that vagueness, because there's also, and I know this doesn't mean the same thing, but there's something about O'Brien that's so, it's so aloof, and then it's not, and she's an open book, but only about certain things, and so 
I do hear that. You know, I've been looking at her memoir, Country Girl, and there's this chapter called The Dining Room. The first line of that is, the dining room was heaven. I named it so. You know, it's just this beautiful place with all of this beautiful furniture and her mother's things. And she says, um, I was there on top of the china cabinet that I kept dolls, which a Protestant woman, a friend of my mother's, had sent to me each Christmas. First was the princess whom I called Rosaline, a sleeping doll, cheeks vivid as if colored with fresh cochineal and eyelashes that by a mere tilt of the head would exquisitely flutter. And then there's a another section where it's called um, classroom. It's, it's interesting just to interrupt briefly mm-hmm. that she doesn't mention in this story, which is clearly autobiographical because it tracks what you're saying. That it's, it's about a these dolls that keep coming every year from this woman that mm-hmm. the kid hardly knows. But in the memoir, she mentions that the woman is a Protestant. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that O'Brien is, you know, from a Catholic family. That's it seems an interesting detail to to uh, have left out of the story, but I can sometimes see why, because certainly, I mean, I, I guess I can see why, because it's not as if Ed O'Brien ever shies away from politics, but this story wasn't about Protestants and Catholics, mm-hmm. or at least as far as I can see, who knows who this teacher is. <laughs> well, she's, she's a heinous person, but she says the part of the community. Yeah. She says, the doll the following year was male, a little Dutch drummer boy in red and fawn, a velvet pajama suit and a drummer's orange hat. He too came in an oblong box, these beautiful details. And then she throws that male boy doll uh, into a box with the princess and leaves them to their mischief. (laughs) But then in a chapter called Classroom, she writes about this teacher who couldn't stand her, even though she was such a good student. She says, um, I wanted to be one of her pets. I strove in every way, especially with my compositions, except that pointedly she slighted me. And, and then she, they, there's going to be this Christmas play, and the teacher asks her to bring this doll, Rosaline, for the nativity play, and the teacher keeps it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's little Edna O'Brien at the teacher's house looking through the window at the doll sitting on the china cabinet. So, (laughs) it's, I keep thinking about that, this idea of, I mean, we... You know, and this is something I tell my students, too. Like, sometimes I really don't want them to look too deeply at an author's uh, bio. I just want them to take in the story and not look at anything else and see what they get. And I think that's still a good thing to do with the doll. But there's something about knowing these facts of her life that make me think about that question of identity and, as you said, place and the things that we obsess about that never leave us. And because, and it's not really about that thing, but it's about what it, what it, what that thing represents. 
I, I agree with you entirely that, that an author's biography shouldn't interfere with a reading of any story, including this one, right? I mean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's fascinating to me that that O'Brien, that this is a formative story, but also makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is completely batshit crazy that a teacher would steal in plain sight your favorite object, right? <laughs> like you bring something in for the school play, the nativity play, right, as a prop, and then, and then the teacher keeps it forever. And that's where the story is truly... You know, it's a tiny little story, but it is so powerful and so <clears throat> really batshit. I mean, truly. <laughs> I, I mean, when when they so the teacher takes the the doll that she loves, and she's very proud. She's very proud that you know the doll has been part of the the play, which was a disaster apparently. <laughs> yeah. Go off well. No one remembered their lines. The kids were. Uh, the, 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 she says the prompters behind the curtains were late so that the kids who were picking up the lines were picking up the wrong lines. So a total disaster to play. And yet her doll was a big hit, right? And then the teacher keeps the doll. And, of course, the family's pissed off, right? The mother, you know, is like, well, where's the doll? The dad's like, you know, if she doesn't give that doll back, I'm going to, you know, heads are going to roll, Right. <laughs> Then there's this turn where O'Brien explains that, well, not so fast, right? At home, I was berserk. My mother said the teacher was probably teasing and that she would return the doll in a day or two. My father said that if she didn't, she would have to answer to him or else get a hammering. The days passed and the holidays came. And not only did she not give me back my doll, but she took it to her own home and put it in the china cabinet along with cups and ornaments. And here's what you read from the memoir. Passing by the window, I would look in. I could not see her because the china cabinet was in a corner, but I knew where she was. I love that, that she actually can't see it, but she knows where it is. It's because the maid, Lizzie, told me. I would press my forehead to the window and call to the doll and say that I was thinking of her and that rescue was being hatched. But there never is a rescue. And the father and the mother both back down. Why? Because teachers at that time, and maybe to a lesser extent today, certainly to a lesser extent today, had a lot of power. And she actually says that, that they actually controlled whether you had brains or not. And so they, they didn't want, the parents didn't want to mess with the teacher. I actually know that I don't want to mess with my kids' teachers. I don't. You know? And so they don't. They don't mess with her. The father never does give her a hammering. And she never possesses this doll again like that would be a good enough story that would be a good enough story and that's three pages at this point and and i'm so mystified by the idea that the teacher doesn't like her and yet i get it but from the point of view of a of a student not a teacher right i appreciate the girl's point even though i'm totally baffled by we don't we don't really understand why the teacher doesn't like her we, and we never will and that's just the way it really is don't you think there's a hint at some point i mean i think that the i think the teacher in this story go, 
I was thinking of like horrible teachers in literature, you <laughs> yeah. know, and there are many, many, many. This one's up there because she's so subtle and weird, and then she steals the doll. <laughs> not, not secretly. She just takes the doll and says, you know, you're not getting the doll. But there is an indication that the reason, and this happens later in, in the latter half of the story, there's an indication that the reason that the teacher had a problem with the kid is because, uh, well, this is in the beginning of the story, but the, the kid was the smartest one, always raising her hand. This is the other funny thing about the story is the kid who's always raising her hand actually drives the teacher crazy. Oh, yeah. She actually fun of her for being the smartest one and doesn't like her for it. That's part of it. But the, I think the more subtle undercurrent of at the end happens when there's this suggestion towards the end where there's this suggestion that the reason the teacher may have had it in for her, and it's not conclusive, but it's a suggestion that she knew she was going to go away. She knew this kid was going to leave. In the memoir, there's like this thing that happens that you can kind of look at it as an inciting thing. And it's a very different situation where the teacher's um, supervisor comes and observes the class. And Edna is, Edna O'Brien is made to feel like the teacher got a bad performance review <laughs> because of something that Edna had said that that was out of line or something. You know, and it's sort of like, well, she was trying to rationalize or just try to figure out why the teacher does just doesn't like her. So there's that little bit of of biographical information. But yeah, I think in in the story, as you say, this kid's really smart. She's really trying her best. She wants to be the teacher's pet. She wants to please her, and that's. For the teacher, that equals nothing that she can really admire. And to be honest, that can't. I mean, you, we both teach. I'm sure. I mean, I find I can I can relate. You know, you don't <laughs> that that annoying. You know what I mean? Like, I, I went to school with a kid who uh, used to, um, when he was done with a quiz or test, which he finished in like under five minutes. He would raise both his arms, put his finger between his two index fingers, uh, his pencil between his two index fingers, and raise his arms really high. I'm doing it right now. And then drop the pen. Drop the pencil onto the desk. I won't say his name because he's still out there and he's a nice guy now. But back then, I could have killed him. And I... So... You know, I, it, it seems like the Edna O'Brien character isn't not annoying, let's say. Oh, <laughs> you know? I see. Yeah. But the teacher, yeah, the teacher, teacher has to have a great deal of power, mm-hmm. you know? And, and you know, they say, after, so after the, the, the parents kind of threaten they're going to, or the father threatens to hammer her, there's the paragraph that starts, everyone agreed that it was monstrous, but no one talked to the teacher. No one tackled her. The truth is, they were afraid of her. She had a bitter, bitter tongue, and also being superstitious, they felt that she could give us children brains or take them away as a witch might. It was as if she could lift the brains out of us with forceps and pickle them in brine. No one did anything. And in time, I became reconciled. And to me, that then it moves off of the child, the, the, the doll, and the, you know, kind of just 
you know, what it's like to grow up. You leave, you leave, you leave shit behind. Yeah. I mean, I can so imagine her, the real Edna O'Brien saying to her, her parents, but my doll and, and them sort of being like, we moved on, <laughs> you know, right. you're yeah. too old, you're too big for dolls and forget about it. Yeah, I think the character does this too, though. And she doesn't lament ever the doll after that paragraph. She, she's done. And that's when the story becomes about something else, I think. My, the, what do you think about the, there's various ways of saying it. Um, you know, the, the bridge, the break, the, mm-hmm. the something, the, the, the chasm that opens up into the story. Well, right before that, where she says, I was preparing to go away to boarding school and I knew that I would be free of her forever, that I would forget her, that I would forget the doll, forget yeah. most of what happened or at least remember it without a quiver. So can you substitute a different word there for, for every time she says doll or her? Because I, I just feel like as she's telling the story now as an older person, doll means something else. But yes, the, and then the, the break. I think, you know, I mentioned this. I have an old friend who passed away, God, now about seven, eight years ago, Victor Martinez, he, uh, a wonderful writer. He was a poet, and he wrote a, a really great novel called Parrot in the Oven. We used to share a, um, an office space together. And I remember... One day I was just sitting working and Victor came in and he, he had this story photocopied for me. He's like, have you read the story of Bad and O'Brien, the doll? And I, you know, I'd heard of O'Brien, but I, I hadn't read it. And, and he's like, yeah, you have to read this right now. <laughs> right now. I was like, well, Vic, I'm, you know, I'm working. He's like, no, no, right now. And then he, he, he sat in, in, my office had no chairs. He actually Rick sat on the floor and watched me read it. <laughs> and, then, and then, and then we we uh, we talked about it. We, but and I think I, I you know and I, I I'm so still mourning that there. Uh, and I, one of the things I'd love to talk to him about is a little bit more about why this story affected him so much. He's a kid who grew up um, in in outside of Fresno and. Parents were um, immigrants who, you know, um, picked tomatoes, and, and he spent a lot of time in the fields too. Uh, and then ended up, um, you know, kind of leaving that world behind. He ended up you know, at Stanford, and he um, became a, a, you know, a writer, and he won the National Book Award for *Paired in the Oven*, which is this amazing book. It's a, a, a YA book, but certainly. Uh, the category defies any kind of categorization, but I just in thinking this week about what, why this story affected him so much. I, I wonder if it had to do with what happens in the latter part of the story, which is somebody completely um, uh, leaves where they're from and doesn't really look back personally, and yet they spend their imaginative lives looking back. And that's how I kind of see Edna O'Brien. You know, she left Ireland, went to London, you know, and didn't quite look back, even though she comes back and she, and, and she definitely, as an imagine, her imaginative life is most 
basically set in Ireland, right? Mm -hmm. Girls trilogy and you know House of Splendid Isolation and mm -hmm. you know, even the more recent novel in the forest, which freaked me out. Um, I'm getting off track, but I, I think there's there's something that I just stories come to us in various ways, and this story was literally <laughs> forced upon me by <laughs> someone like, look, you need to know this one, and and you know I. Thank you for that. And, uh, Do you remember how you felt when you read the story? Yeah, I mean, I was sitting there, he's watching me. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? He's kind of an amazing guy. And, you know, and, and I, but I remember, you know, I remember at a certain point I forgot he was there. Oh, wow. And I think it was it, it's at, this, at this point where this, this, what I call a rupture in the story, where it starts you know, at this point, the, 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 the teacher has stolen the doll. The parents, especially the father, have not risen up against the teacher, but have let it be. And now she has let it be. And she has left. And then there's a space break. And then the years go by, and everything and everyone gets replaced. Those we knew, though absent, are yet merged inextricably into new folk, so that each person is to us a sum of many others, and the effect is of opening box after box in which the original is forever hidden. And that's what I sort of mean about the vagueness. Like, what the hell? What is she talking about? <laughs> like, suddenly the story, like, you know, suddenly we were to new folk. This, each person is a sum of many others, and the effect is of opening box after box in which the original is forever hidden. Like, what? Like, it, you know, it's this sort of like, you know, she she goes into hiding in in the text, and then to me comes, you know, and again, I, what do we say about not being hyperbolic? <laughs> you know, because like, I mean, you know, but O'Brien is, you know, come on, I mean, is she our first living writer? I think she is, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, who who is better at this than Ed O'Brien, living right now, literally? Hmm. You know? mm -hmm. and, and this paragraph that follows is one of her very, you know, seminal moments, I'm going to argue. Mm -hmm. But this one, this one, can I read it? Please do. The teacher dies a slow death. So already look, <laughs> we go and the teacher steals it. Nobody says anything. The teacher's got too much power. She goes away. The teacher dies a slow death. Wastes to a thread through cancer yet strives against it and says she is not ready. I hear the amount of money she left and her pitiable last words, but I feel nothing. I feel none of the rage and none of the despair. She does not matter to me anymore. I am on the run from them. I have fled. I live in a city. I am cosmopolitan. People come to my house, all sorts of people, and they do feats like dancing or jesting or singing, inventing a sort of private theater where we all play a part. I too play a part. My part is to receive them and disarm them, ply them with food and drink, and secretly be wary of them, be distanced from them. Like them, I smile and drift. Like them, I smoke or drink to induce a feverishness or a pleasant wandering hallucination. It's not something I cultivated developed of its own accord, like a spore that breathes in the darkness. So I am far from those I am with, and far from those I have left. At night, I enjoy the farness, 
In the morning, I touch a table or a teacup to make sure that it is a table or a teacup. And I talk to it and I water the flowers and I talk to them. And I think how tender flowers are and woods and wood smoke and possibly how tender are my new friends. But that, like me, they are intent on concealment. None of us ever says where we come from or what haunts us. Perhaps we are bewildered or ashamed. It's not just compression, right? It's something else here. It's something, it's something else. It's, it, it's completely off topic. You know, it, it's about something else. It's this like weird confessional, like suddenly like, like feasting, like dancing. I mean, like, again, what is she talking about? It, 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 it's, a, it's a crazy paragraph. And all the more so, I think, because of where it is in the story. You know, it, it just, I'd love to pick her brain and ask her, how'd that come? You know what I mean? But don't you get it? Like them, I smile and drift. Like them, I smoke or drink to induce a feverishness. You know, sort of like, but, but I'm uh, secretly wary of them. You yeah. know, she's sort of like, is she being herself? Or is she not, is... I am cosmopolitan. I am on the run from them. I have let, you know, it's like she has to say it out loud. She has to declare it. But does she mean it? And, and besides all those things, then she's also wary of these people that she hangs out with now that have sort of replaced um, all those others <laughs> back home. It, it messes with the normal trajectory of the person who leaves. Yes. Right. And it's and and it seems like if that's what's so for me in a way that's what's so remarkable about it. she's like yes I left and yet I'm also like in this weird limbo place but again what does it have to do with sort of the the doll right yeah <laughs> except that it opens with the teacher's death and the segue just to be totally geeky but. I hear the amount of money she left and hear her pitiable last words, but I feel nothing. I feel none of the rage and none of the despair. She does not matter to me. I am on the run from them. The teacher is all of them now. Mm -hmm. I am on the run from them and then, right? And so, you know, it, it, it's just the, the movement from the specificity of the doll itself to, you know, kind of like this young woman part of this new group of people being all partying and drinking and drugs and whatever. Um, there was a lot of that for sure. It's in the memoir too. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but it's all like, I just get a sense of somebody feeling like this great weight that's hasn't gone away and none of the partying is going to help that. Well, the weight has to do with where she's from. So a couple of things. First, in that paragraph you just read where she says, in the morning I touch a table or a teacup to make sure that it is a table or a teacup. That breaks my heart a little bit. That's somebody who is, who's able to say what her new life is like now, and it sounds, all, sounds great. She's cosmopolitan. She has these wonderful dinners with her friends. She's wary of them. You know, I get the sense of she has to touch those things almost to anchor herself in that space because she doesn't really feel like she belongs there. 
and she's still t- thinking about, you know, the teacher. And I don't mean it in that in that way. So what the teacher represents, or you know, why she's stuck on this idea as she's telling the story, is that the teacher herself, what she represented, that approval that's so important when we're trying to figure out who we are. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I'm overthinking that part of it's not the doll, it's the teacher, but it's not the teacher, it's it's her it's this person. It's this character. Yeah, I mean well you don't become someone else just because you flee. You know, and yeah. I mean, in some ways it's really obvious movement here. Like she hasn't escaped where she's from and she has not fully, you know, immersed herself in a in a you know, in a group that she's because she's not that comfortable and and whatever she's not she's not there she's there and not there i mean that that line about farness is really beautiful you know and 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 heartbreaking and and sad it's this weird limbo period i at night i enjoy the farness farness from where farness from the place she is and farness from the town she's from it's a it's a paragraph and if you look at it on the page it sits by itself by itself in the story kind of floating independently there's no term of art to describe it but it does seem to me to kind of be you know kind of a a, a bridge between the, the past and the and the, the 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 present action of the story or whatever however you want to call it yeah. which is when she goes home again yes and why does she go home because her aunt has died and beautifully and conveniently maybe <laughs> but somehow O'Brien gets away with it completely. A because it's totally believable. The the son, who we didn't talk about, but is identified. It's talked about as very creepy. In fact, very very creepy. Yeah. Touching little girls earlier in the story, right? Yeah. We didn't even talk about. You know, because it's almost like she says it's so matter of factly, but it is there, and she doesn't sugarcoat it. He was clearly a you know a predator. The yeah. son. And then he is the undertaker taking care of Edna, of, of the character's aunt who has died. It's and in the same house of the teacher. So here we are. She's now <laughs> back in that house. She is not there to take revenge. She is not there to get the doll back. She's there to handle and apparently pay for the funeral arrangements for her aunt. And she's looking at the overstuffed china cabinet and sees the confiscated doll. And if dolls can age, it certainly had. This relic, this this, this thing, and and the and the guy says he doesn't let his own kids play with it because it's such a it's such an important family heirloom. A sacred object. And she doesn't like rush to it. The whole thing, it makes her sick. A sickness came over me. For having cared so much and having let them maltreat me and now for no longer caring at all. What is that regret really about, do you think? This guy, this guy in seventh grade used to just mercifully make fun of me. Michael Zamos. Zamos, if you're with, we're, I just also, <laughs> I know it now. Not so bad anymore. We're friends. But Zamos used to be, you know, insanely, he would make fun of me. And for some reason, he, 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 I don't know why this drove me crazy, but he, he 
he's, he's saying my name backwards. Call me Renro. And for some reason, this just, I, I, it made me insane. I couldn't <laughs> handle it. I, I, every time he'd go, Renro, and I'd be like, it would, I, I don't know. It just, I was driven absolutely insane by it. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, I spent a lot of energy by that. Now, <laughs> I mean, I guess I can understand, like, what was I wasting my, I don't know, I could have been ice skating better or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> working on my learning math. So it, it seems like she is just like, what was I thinking? I gave a shit about these people? This stupid doll? You know, he tries to kiss her. Yes. Except that the kiss was proffered as a sympathy kiss, a kiss of condolence over my aunt's death. His face had the sour smell of a towel that he must have dried himself on just before he came to welcome me. The kiss was clumsiness personified. I pitied him, but I could not stay. <laughs> you know, this, the whole, that whole scene, the whole going back is just the worst from beginning to end. And she says, I could not pretend to be the fast, kiss-easy woman he imagined me to be. It's like she understands that she now has this kind of reputation or she's just perceived now as this uh, worldly woman but she's not going to play that role <laughs> with him you know and if you, you know because you brought it up and it's fair game because the story is part of her memoir and clearly something that was based on something that's true you know at this time i mean i know brian got famous very young and would have been known right mm -hmm. and it, if you look at like, um, is it August is a wicked month where the, the cover of her, it's actually the same picture that's on the cover of the country girl memoir. Mm -hmm. um, it's this, you know, she's smoking and it's this young, beautiful and O'Brien. And you know, that's who this guy may have been thinking of. It was, you know, her, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I just feel like there was a great deal of pressure on, on the person. On again, this is a, fiction piece of fiction but i think it's certainly informed by like you suggest by obviously something that happened and i think that you know i think she had this sort of reputation I mean, she was banned i mean we're going to get more maybe in other episodes yeah into her, you know what went down with her but she it was brutal yeah brutal. um uh you know her books were i believe destroyed right mm -hmm. and you know, and, you know every priest in ireland was cursing at o'brien so I don't know how, why I got off on that tangent, except that, you know, he, the fast, e kiss, easy woman he imagined me to be. I mean, she's grieving her aunt. She's trying to pay for the funeral bill and this guy is coming on to her. But a lesser writer would have made a much bigger deal about this scene. It's so pathetic. Yeah. Love the fact that she doesn't give him any airtime. You know, he doesn't, he's not allowed to take over the story. The story's not about the stupid son of the teacher. But that's all that was left back there was this moldy old doll, the remaining relatives that she played this part for, and that moldy old doll, and then this weird guy. Then she can leave again. She can leave, and, and that's it. And that's it. Do you want to read the last two paragraphs? This is the last section. 
Um, sure. Why, why don't I read the first paragraph and you read the last paragraph? Okie doke. Yeah. So then she leaves the guy, <laughs> you know, and she's walking, walking down the street where I walk in memory, morning, noon, and night. I could not tell what it was precisely that reduced me to such wretchedness. Indeed, it was not death, but rather the gnawing conviction of not having yet lived. All I could tell was that the stars were as singular and as wondrous as I remembered them, and that they still seemed like a link, an enticement to the great heavens, and that one day I would reach them and be absorbed into their glory and pass from a world that, at that moment, I found to be rife with cruelty and stupidity, a world that had forgotten how to give. Tomorrow, I thought, tomorrow I shall be gone and realized that I had not lost the desire to escape or the strenuous habit of hoping. How do you explain to anybody how, 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 how this ending works? I mean, I, I, no, I don't know how to begin to explain, except it goes back to that sort of vagueness. I mean, there's no, the instinct that, you know, like that I would have is to be real specific in this moment. I mean, she's walking down the street in her old town, like the opportunities there for what she sees and what she remembers are incredible. But she doesn't go there at all. She talks about the stars and the firmament. I mean, influenced by poetry here, she wants to kind of make it soar. But it's a crazy, I, again, I'm using that a lot, but it's a, it's a great risk, even in this tiny little story, to do <laughs> something quite like that. Edna O'Brien is the author of the short story, The Doll. The essay, My Father's Gloves, appears in the memoir and essays, Am I Alone Here? by Peter Orner. He's also the author of five other books, including the story collection, Maggie Brown and Others. Peter Orner holds the professorship in English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. We had help this week from Kathleen Creedon. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>